Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Uh, our speaker today is Dr. Michael Brennan. Mike attended NC State, earning a, a PhD in 2005 in atmospheric science from that fine university. Mike began his weather service career at the Weather Prediction Center, where he held the position of science and operations officer. Yeah, he moved to NHC as a uh, senior hurricane specialist in 2008, and after 10 years of honing his scientific skills, he promoted over to the dark side, where he's now in management as the branch chief of the hurricane specialist unit. Mike brings plenty of skills to that position, not the least of which is his people skills. So, Mike, with that, uh, please take it away. Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's uh, great to uh, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And yeah, as you mentioned, you know we're still a couple weeks away from the official start of the hurricane season. But yeah, we do have that system. Uh, we're expecting to develop and go on and become a, probably a subtropical cyclone in the vicinity of the northwestern Bahamas over the weekend. So we're spinning up to take care of that operationally. Already doing coordination with the WFOs, with the Bahamas, with the hurricane hunters, and getting everything ready for uh, that possibility as we head into the weekend. So, uh, so what I want to talk to you today about is um oops excuse me there make sure share my screen here and we'll uh get into the, the the meat of my talk and the title of the talk is it's hurricanes it's more than just a forecast so you know what i want to talk about today is is not so much the science and the nuts and bolts of making the forecast but really all the effort that goes in across the federal state and local government uh, agencies to really make the hurricane program work. So, you know, while you know, forecasting hurricanes is the responsibility of NHC, and the forecasting of the weather happens in the Weather Service. There's just multiple agencies all across the federal government, including FEMA, the Army Corps of Engineers, the Air Force, you know, other parts of NOAA, USGS, and then down to the state and local governments for the state emergency management agencies, down to counties and municipalities that all go in to the process of, of basically coming up with a way to get people out of harm's way when a hurricane threatens, especially for the storm surge hazard. So that's what I want to try to touch on today is sort of take you through an example of, of how that works and has worked in a previous event. So first of all, a little motivation. We all know that hurricanes have the potential to cause extreme loss of life. You know, in the 20th century, there were more than 80,000 fatalities in Atlantic, Atlantic Basin tropical storms and hurricanes. Um, 1,200 fatalities happened in Katrina in the United States alone, which is the third deadliest hurricane in U.S. history. Obviously, for, for folks near in southeast Texas, the Galveston hurricane in 1900 had about 8,000 fatalities. The southeast Florida Lake Okeechobee storm in 1928 killed about 2,500 people. And beyond the, uh, the loss of life, the damage just since 2000 in the United States from tropical storms and hurricanes is more than $795 billion dollars. And more than a third of that has occurred just in the last three hurricane seasons. So these are obviously very impactful types of events. And this is a question that Ken likes to ask, and I've sort of stolen it from him. But, you know, when you close your eyes and think of a hurricane, what do you see? And most people think about the wind. And while the wind is one of the hazards, it's really the water hazards. And in particular, what I'm going to touch on today is the storm surge hazard that has the potential to kill the largest number of people in a single day in this country and, and basically worldwide in tropical cyclone events. And, you know, if you go back and look at the uh, tropical cyclone direct fatalities in the United States, this is work that Ed Rappaport, our deputy director, has done going back from 1963 to 2012. 
Again, these are direct fatalities, fatalities that are directly due to the forces of the storm, so things like wind or drowning. You can see that storm surge is responsible for about half of the fatalities in the United States during this period. Um, water, in terms of rainfall flooding, is responsible for about another quarter. Another 12% happen either in uh, offshore surf-related fatalities. And then the wind fatalities are about 10%, tornadoes about 3%. So, um, you know, so storm surge in particular and water in general has a, a huge uh, portion of the fatalities uh, that, that we lose people to for direct deaths in the United States. And if you go back and look at the 2016 to 2018 season, there's actually 83% of the fatalities in the U.S. were water-related, and most of these were actually due to inland flooding. Only about 4% of them were storm surge-related. Um, this, of course, excludes Maria, given the uncertainty associated with the number of deaths and the, the cause of deaths in that particular event. But, uh, you know, we've, we feel like we've hopefully made some progress on the storm surge front with the introduction of the storm surge watch warning in 2017, the inundation graphic. There's been this continued focus on, uh, on that storm surge hazard. But we're losing more people now to inland flooding. Uh, during the past three seasons, more than half the U.S. tropical uh, cyclone weather-related fatalities were vehicle-related. So we have a, we're losing a tremendous amount of people who are driving into flooded areas, driving around barricades, uh, and dying in freshwater flooding. So that's a particular point of emphasis. Another area we're interested in looking at more at is uh, the indirect fatalities. So these are fatalities that are not due to the direct causes of the storm, but uh, fatalities that occur because the storm happened. So a lot of these end up being medical-related issues. You see about a third of them are related to cardiovascular incidents. Uh, people having heart attacks, uh, either stress-related, heat-induced, uh, exertion-related, either before or after a storm. A lot of fatalities occur during evacuation, things like vehicle incidents. You have a lot of falls, accidents for people getting ready for the storm, things like carbon monoxide poisoning, fires, uh, other household accidents. So in the past few years, uh, these have uh, almost exceeded or equaled the number of direct fatalities we've seen in some storms. Perhaps that's due to the fact that we've had some very powerful storms that have left people who did not evacuate in communities where there were no emergency services or very little in the way of infrastructure left and uh, basically leaving themselves in a very vulnerable position. But historically, there's not been much attention given to these. The most of the historical literature is focused on the direct deaths. And I think as we move into an era where we're hopefully reducing the direct fatalities, that means there are more people around to perhaps suffer from these indirect fatalities. And a lot of these tend to uh, uh, afflict the older parts of the population, especially as you get above 60. Uh, a lot of the medical uh, issues tend to concentrate in that, uh, that demographic. So that's uh, something else that we're trying to focus on at NHC. Now, going to the forecasting side, you know, the products we provide at NHC are really following the storm and providing the big picture. You know, where is the storm going? How strong is the storm? How big is it? What are the sort of large scale impacts from storm surge, wind, freshwater flooding? And then the local impact information and IDSS is provided by the local weather forecast offices in the National Weather Service who can really get down to what's happening at that community scale and help support those local evacuation decisions. Um, just a quick overview, you know, our advisory packages, again, issued every six hours. We're providing a five-day track and intensity forecast, forecasting the size of the storm through 72 hours for the tropical storm and 50-knot winds, the hurricane force winds out through 48 hours, Coastal watches and warnings for the United States and international areas it also includes things like the storm surge watch and warning that I'm pointing at here. 
uh, a lot of focus on hazard information, storm surge probabilities, wind speed probabilities, hazard information about rainfall and flooding. And then there's a big focus on messaging uh, that we've really taken to heart here in the last few years. You know, we're providing key messages, just sort of plain language about what the biggest hazards are, what people should be doing to get ready for the storm, what they should be paying attention to. And then obviously the forecast discussion itself has a lot of information about the forecasters reasoning, their confidence in the forecast scenario. If you look back, you know, over the last uh, 50 to 60 years, this is just a, a chart showing our track forecast error trends and how they've changed over time. You know, if you go back, looking at back to the 1970s, this uh, black line here shows our average track forecast error in the most recent decade here in the 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, 70s. Uh, the track forecast errors now are about a quarter of what they were in the 1970s. This has been a tremendous advancement. So say in 1970, the average three-day track forecast error was somewhere in the vicinity of 360, 370 nautical miles. Now it's about 100. So a huge scientific advancement here that's been driven largely by advances in numerical modeling. Uh, on the intensity side, the story was much different for many years, all the way up into the, the first decade of this century. The intensity forecast errors really didn't change very much. You can see all these lines from the 1970s up to the first decade, the 2000 to 2009, are sort of all bunched together. But we have seen a significant decrease in uh, our average intensity forecast errors in the last 10 years, this, uh, this last decade. There's still certainly room for improvement, especially for rapidly strengthening storms. And I'll touch on that a little bit when we talk more about Michael. So um, what's the goal? So the goal that I'm going to talk about today is basically community scale evacuation in areas that have the potential for life-threatening storm surge. And I'm going to show this video from FEMA that really sort of captures what we're trying to get people away from. You can't realize what your house is like when it starts flooding. Everything floats. You can't get down the hallway. I mean, you, you, you got to fight to get where you're going. The door flush. We can't hold it. I don't know how long we held it. I don't know how high this water's gonna get. We're gonna be trapped like rats in here. I saw death outside that door. So that video from FEMA is really well done and sort of captures what actually happens on the ground in areas where you do see life-threatening storm surge and what people actually experience there. And getting people away from that is sort of the goal that I'm going to focus on in the presentation here today. And we're going to do that in the context of Hurricane Michael, which made landfall in the Florida Panhandle on October 10th in 2018. Uh, it was the first Category 5 hurricane landfall in the United States since Andrew in 1992. It was responsible for uh, 16 direct fatalities and 43 indirect deaths and about $25 billion in damage in the United States. So uh, to summarize what Michael did in terms of the storm surge, we ended up with a catastrophic storm surge in Mexico Beach. And this image here on the right is an aerial photograph of the Mexico Beach area after Michael. And you can see that there's basically little left standing. Uh, there was much as 14 feet of inundation. And then uh, 
just as importantly, destructive waves on top of that inundation. And the combination of the surge and the waves and the winds is, is generally not survivable for people who are left in that, that particular area. You know, at the time of Michael, Mexico Beach had a, a standing population of about 1,200 people. Um, there were about 50 people left in Mexico Beach when Michael arrived, only about 4.2%. So what I want to take you through here is, is all the work that it takes to get that number of, from 1,200 down to 50. How do we manage evacuations? How do we plan for them? And how do we put them into place in the context of hurricanes? And how does sort of the whole picture come together? So we'll start years before. And um, I'm going to start years before with the work that's done by the storm surge unit at the National Hurricane Center. And this is work that's funded by FEMA to create storm surge vulnerability mapping for the uh, U.S. coastline, the Gulf Coast and the East Coast of the United States. And to do this, the storm surge unit runs a storm surge model uh, thousands of times to capture all the different combinations of the storm's track, forward speed, intensity and angle of approach and storm size and basically pulls out the highest possible storm surge that could occur out of all those thousands of scenarios and basically creates a spatial representation of that. And so what you get out of that is basically a storm surge risk map uh, that basically shows you the worst case scenario of what storm surge could do at a given location. And this is the category five storm surge risk map for portions of the Florida Panhandle. So I've, I've drawn an arrow here that shows the location of Mexico Beach and the color shading, uh, once you get to this uh, red color, shows that you have the potential for more than nine feet of inundation above ground level. So you can certainly see that in, on Mexico Beach and in large portions of this portion of this part of the Florida Gulf Coast, that there is that potential for that catastrophic uh, storm surge. You know, or the, the initial cutoff for the storm surge watch warning is three feet. So you can see there's you know huge areas that are colored in this yellow, orange, or red, but uh, Mexico Beach certainly has the potential for more than nine feet of storm surge. So this is done, again, years before, before there's ever a storm that's threatening the area. And based on this storm surge map, risk mapping, local and state governments are able to draw hurricane evacuation zones that are based largely on storm surge risk. And this is the uh, hurricane evacuation zone map for Bay County, Florida, where uh, Mexico Beach is located. And these uh, zones are developed well in advance of a storm and they are publicly available and they let people know what their storm surge risk is and if they could potentially be asked to evacuate for a hurricane. Because if you live in one of these storm surge evacuation zones, you have to at least know that I could be asked to leave my home. Where am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to get there? What's my evacuation plan? So you can again see that uh, you know the Mexico Beach area here is in this uh, storm surge of uh, zone A right along the immediate barrier island. There's a uh, zone B, C, and D that are also uh, cover large portions of the Bay County area here. In addition, again, years before, based on these storm surge evacuation zones and on the storm surge uh, risk mapping, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers performs hurricane evacuation studies for states and counties that consider all sorts of factors that might play into hurricane evacuation. The storm surge vulnerability, the population of the area, whether it's a high tourist season or not, what's the traffic flow, what's the response rate to the evacuation, are people gonna respond quickly or slowly? And this allows emergency managers at that state and local level who are actually making these evacuation decisions to determine how long is this gonna take to get everybody out of the area that needs to be evacuated. Uh, again, they can allows them to look at different factors uh, doing, uh, related to the storm, related to the population, related to the social response to the evacuation orders. 
And for Bay County, Florida, the maximum clearance time, so worst case scenario, you have to evacuate all your zones. It's going to sort of take the, long as, the longest possible time it could take is 32 and a half hours. So with that number in mind, emergency management officials in Bay County know that in a worst case scenario, you have to give everybody at least that 32 and a half hour time frame to evacuate. Now, you might take other factors into consideration like time of day or other things, but that's a, a very useful number and allows basically localities to plan for these evacuation decisions. So in the time frame for months to years before, FEMA sponsors week-long hurricane preparedness classes for state and local emergency managers that are held at NHC each winter. And these are broken up. There's uh, one for the uh, Gulf Coast, one for the Southeast Coast, one for the Northeast Coast. They uh, last a, a week. They cover a variety of topics. We have folks from the Hurricane Center teaching about hurricane hazards, the Weather Services product suite, forecast uncertainty. There's a, a, a large chunk of time devoted to storm surge, uh, risk mapping and real-time products that are available. Then there's a section on uh, how do you design uh, hurricane evacuation zones and make decisions for hurricane evacuations, training on software like Huravac that helps uh, emergency managers integrate all this data in real time. And then there's an exercise that actually goes through a storm, look at products, look at the forecast, talk about the evacuation decisions that would be made. And you know, since the early 1990s, we've trained more than 1,500 emergency managers at this week-long class. So it's sort of one of the flagship FEMA emergency management courses. We also have three-day and one-day versions of the course that uh, NHC and FEMA offer at uh, other conferences, such as the National Hurricane Conference or regional uh, training opportunities. And I'm, I'm glad to say we were able to get uh, the FEMA classes in this winter before uh, COVID began affecting uh, travel and other things like that. So we were able to tra uh, train the full complement of, uh, of EMs this year. And this is a picture of the, the Southeast region class from 2020. Also thinking in the months before time frame, you know, as we head into each hurricane season, uh, the folks in NOAA, both in the weather service, uh, uh, on the research side, are really working to upgrade the weather forecast models that are critical to making good forecasts of hurricane formation, track, intensity, size, and the impacts from the hazards, things like storm surge and wind and rainfall. Uh, there's also a lot of work that's done every year to uh, learn how to better use the observational data we have, especially things like aircraft data, radar data from the aircraft and satellite data to really get that into the models to better analyze the initial conditions of the hurricane and produce a better forecast. And this animation here is an experimental model that's being run at the Hurricane Research Division that's called the Basin Scale H-Wharf. So right now we run individual hurricane models sort of one at a time for each storm separately. But this particular basin scale model allows you to uh, have the storms all interact with each other. And this is a period from 2017 when we had Katia and Irma and Jose all going on at the same time in relatively close proximity to each other. And this allows the storms that in the real atmosphere do affect one another to affect one another in the model. Also on the timeline of months before, the Weather Service is working on updating its real-time hurricane product suite each year to provide new information to users in real time about the hurricane hazards. So we have things like the time of arrival graphics for tropical storm force winds that provide the most likely and earliest reasonable time of arrival that's so critical so again, the timing for that evacuation decision-making. We have hurricane threats and impacts graphics from the local forecast offices that are again, focused on those individual threats. This is a storm surge uh, risk graphic for a particular hurricane in South Florida that again, shows the varying levels of risk from extreme all the way down to elevated for storm surge in any given location. 
Also, in the months before time frame, you know, the Hurricane Center, every offseason, we're verifying all our forecasts and doing the post-analysis of everything from the previous year. And then we know what our track and intensity forecast errors are. And using those, the information we have about those errors, we can create products that provide risk information for things like storm surge and hurricane force winds. So that's what drives things like the probabilistic storm surge model, which are centered around the official forecast, but use the typical track and intensity forecast errors we make for uh, for that in the past few years. Same thing for the wind speed probabilities that drive these products that show like the chances of seeing sustained tropical storm force winds at a given location, the time of arrival products. So all that's, again, based on doing that verification work, updating those error distributions and, and making the uh, the probabilistic guidance as realistic as it can be as we head into each season. In terms of outreach, you know, one of the things that we try to do every year, we weren't unfortunately weren't able to do it this year, was the hurricane awareness tour with the NOAA and Air Force Hurricane Hunter aircraft go around the uh, East Coast one year, Gulf Coast each, uh, the other year. Uh, every May, basically raising community level awareness, getting a lot of media attention and uh, raising the awareness of the hazards associated with the upcoming hurricane season. So uh, hope to resume that again next year. We weren't able to do it this season, but that's just a reflection of all the outreach and education and training that goes on in the off season uh, for the hurricane program. So now we'll start talking specifically about Michael. Now we're in the days before time frame. So NHC is issuing its uh, tropical weather outlook that talks about the chances of tropical cyclone formation in the next five days. And this is sort of the first official heads up that people have that a system could form and potentially threaten their area. This is the first tropical weather outlook that mentioned uh, what became Hurricane Michael. It was first mentioned in the outlook at uh, 2 a.m. on the 2nd of October. That was about uh, eight days before Michael uh, eventually made landfall. Uh, it was given a low chance of formation in the next five days. That chance of formation was raised to the high category uh, three days later on October 5th. That's when we were very confident that uh, some sort of tropical cyclone was going to form here near the Yucatan Peninsula or into the Gulf of Mexico. And this, is, this was about about two, a little less than two days before uh, Michael actually became a tropical depression. Now, again, on the days before uh, timeline, we'll go back and talk about the aircraft. The hurricane hunters from the Air Force Reserves and NOAA are really are out there collecting critical uh, data in terms of the wind, how strong is the storm, where is it located, radar data that gets into the models, data that are used by NHC forecasters to help anchor our analysis of the storm and basically give us the best start to the forecast process that we can have. Um, the data are also used by the weather models to help predict the storm's track, intensity, and structure. And for Michael, the Air Force Reserves flew nine flights into the storm and NOAA flew six. Uh, the first flight into what became Michael was actually held, uh, happened on November 7th uh, uh, when, it, uh, when the storm, we had already started advisories on the system uh, in, the, uh, in the Caribbean Sea. And we'll talk a little bit more about the critical information that the, air, that the uh, uh, hurricane hunters were collecting as Michael was rapidly strengthening before it made landfall. Starting days before, NHC issued the first advisory in what became Michael as a potential tropical cyclone on October 6th. So that's when we started making our five-day forecast of the storm's uh, future track and intensity. And from NHC, we're really able to drive the national-level messaging that filters all the way through the rest of the federal government down to the state and local level and getting that message out to the public through uh, traditional uh, you know, broadcast media and social media that really allows us to, uh, to reach the, uh, the, the general public itself, in addition to the, the messaging that we're driving through the weather service down to the emergency management level. And we'll show some examples of how that evolved during Michael. 
So here's a look at our track forecast for Michael. Um, you know, the, tr the uh, actual track of Michael is shown here on the left by the white symbols. The uh, individual blue lines are the actual NHC track forecast that were made. You can see that early on, there were, the tracks were biased a little bit to the left, taking the center of the system closer to the Yucatan Peninsula. But all the track forecasts showed a you know, consistent threat for a landfalling of the system somewhere in the Florida Panhandle. And on the right side is our paper track map. You can see the best track history of the storm with all the fixes from the aircraft, from satellite, from radar. And again, you can see the erased track forecast lines here. All these same blue lines are just plotted on here in pencil over and over again, focused again on that area in the Florida Panhandle. So there was very good consistent uh, signal and consistent forecasting from NHC uh, that Michael was going to threaten the Florida Panhandle uh, from its very earliest uh, signs of formation. In terms of the intensity forecast, our forecast did show a strengthening storm, but but certainly failed to capture Michael's rapid strengthening prior to landfall. This is the intensity forecast guidance that we had on the 8th of October, the morning of the 8th of October. Remember, Michael made landfall in the afternoon of the 10th of October. You can see that the all the intensity forecast guidance going out in time here with these colored lines showed, you know, a storm strengthening uh, up to close to, you know, category two, category three strength. Our intensity forecast would actually higher than all of the guidance showing a peak intensity of about 100 to 105 knots. But you can see that you know, the, the forecasts were a little too high in the short range, but then they were certainly too low as we got out beyond 24 to 36 hours. And Michael went on to uh, strengthen rapidly right up to landfall. And then uh, you can see that the, the, certainly the guidance and the NHC forecast didn't, weren't able to capture that. Uh, however, we, on that first, uh, the first time we did show Michael making hurricane status before landfall was at the advisory that was issued at 4 a.m. Central Time on the 7th, about three and a half days or so, a little more than three days before Michael actually did make landfall. We were at least advertising the threat of hurricane uh, conditions along the northern Gulf Coast. Talk a little bit about the messaging. Um, we provide, again, these high-level key messages that are really designed to be sort of national-level talking points. Uh, for use within the media and elsewhere in the weather service and elsewhere within the government. They were sort of originally developed as sort of, uh, you know, short messages that might mimic what you would see running along the crawl on the bottom of your TV screen. Again, we've tried to make them very focused on hazards. Um, you can see here from Michael, we had a situation where we were having to message sort of two events in one. We had an ongoing tropical storm event in the uh, in Cuba and the Yucatan Peninsula dealing with very heavy rainfall and winds and actually portions of Cuba saw hurricane conditions as Michael strengthened a little faster than expected. And then we're also messaging this longer range threat to the Gulf Coast, uh, now talking about how Michael's forecast to be a hurricane when it reaches the northeastern Gulf Coast, talking about those impacts of uh, dangerous risk of storm surge, rainfall and wind impacts increasing. And uh, talking especially about the vulnerability of that portion of the Gulf Coast to storm surge, regardless of the storm's exact track or intensity, and encouraging people to follow the advice that they're given by their local officials. Again, trying to raise awareness. And because we put these out every six hours, our language and what we can talk about evolves as the risk changes and the forecast scenarios change. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center. Produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com. <laughs>